all of a sudden, second wave. This week, break it up, everyone. You need to send that 16th person at your party home. It's illegal now. We'll talk about temporary shelters, zoning bylaws, and of course, bridges. On time, on budget. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 105, where thankfully, right off the top of the show, there are notes in the document for me to throw to you. So Mac, there's a new podcast called Taproot Edmonton Presents. That's right. As we've teased in the past, we've launched a new podcast uh, called Taproot Edmonton Presents, and our first audio series is called Igniting Innovation. It's a six-part series that looks at how tech entrepreneurs, investors, and people in the community are coming together to try to build the tech innovation sector in our city. And of course, it's hosted by our new managing editor, uh, Emily Rendell Watson. And you can get this wherever podcasts are sold. Yeah, that's the typical tagline. It's at uh, presents.taprootedmonton.ca. You can subscribe to it in all your favorite apps. We've published um, two of the six episodes so far. The first looks at Startup TNT, uh, which started out as a Thursday night uh, event to get together and has morphed into a much bigger community initiative to help bring more investors into the tech scene. And then the second episode looks at the tech innovation landscape a little bit more broadly um, with uh, Ashlyn and Chris, uh, two longstanding members of the tech community who uh, are very engaged and have lots of both context to share with listeners as well as thoughts on where we go from here. And I think the next place we go from here is into the rapid fire segment. Breaking news out of Alberta's capital today as Edmonton City Hall is once again at loggerheads with the Alberta legislature. With the coronavirus pandemic putting financial and mental stress on everyone in our province, both orders of government insist that they're doing the best they can to help Albertans through this, if only the other order of government would get on board. At press time, in response to businesses struggling and shuttering in the city, Edmonton City Council declared the problems resolved after receiving a series of reports written by consultants for information. The province, however, insists that the city is not doing enough and has established three new panels to discuss the city's failure and deliver and provide recommendations. Neither of these actions are enough for Alberta's unions, however, who said in a press release that both parties need to, quote, come back to the table. Edmonton's Summerside neighborhood is slated to be a new kind of spooky this year, as a group of hearse enthusiasts plan to drive a procession through it on Halloween. The parade of vehicles will have sealed bags of candy to distribute, but city officials are reminding residents to be respectful of processions. Said the city's branch manager of slightly longer vehicles, a hearse driving around signals that a death has occurred and this is no different. The hearses driving through Summerside will be full to the brim with the death of quality urban planning. AHS had to massively increase security presence in their hospitals this week after a surge of threatening messages appeared on social media. While there's not been any reported events of action following the deluge of threats, the AHS CEO is not taking any chances, saying, quote, We take the safety and security of our workers seriously, and we will spare no expense in increasing the security personnel until we're sure it's safe again, end quote. The measures have been put in place after several thousand Edmontonians changed their profile pictures on Facebook to say that they support striking healthcare workers. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. And this episode is brought to you by the Alberta Forest Products Association, who helpfully has passed along this clip. Alberta's forests matter to all of us. That's why Alberta's forest industry works to keep them sustainable now and for future generations. 
By planning 200 years ahead, helping control the spread of fire and disease, and planting and nurturing two trees for every one harvested, we keep our forests standing strong. To learn more about how our forests take care of us and how we take care of them, visit loveabforests.com. So I got to say, Mac, when you were prepping this document, our show notes for today, and you put the first item to throw to a different podcast in the Alberta Podcast Network that got an interview with Mayor Don Iveson, who hasn't come and done our show in a long time, a little bit nonplussed. What's all this about? <laughs> yeah, I thought we should shout out to our fellow APN member, the Dave Berta podcast, Dave Cornet and Adam Rosenhart. Uh, episode 61, they got an interview with the mayor. They talked about what it's like to be the mayor during a pandemic. They, of course, touched on his favorite topic, the fiscal imbalance between the different orders of government. And they spent quite a bit of time talking about the plan to end homelessness as well. And they also got the opportunity to ask him if he's running again in next year's municipal election. And what did he say? What's the hot goss? You can probably guess. Undecided, but quote, I'll have more on that soon, end quote. Which, you know, soon could be any time from now till September. And as we have said on this show before, it is still too soon to be running for another election. Let's push that all off until the new year, at least. City Council this week didn't push everything off to the future. We had talked previously about the new city plan, including updates to the zoning bylaw and, in fact, an entirely new zoning bylaw. But city administration thought, you know, that new zoning bylaw, not common for a couple of years, and this week pushed together a whole slate of omnibus zoning changes to update the current zoning bylaw and say, let's align this a little closer with our goals going forward. As you say, it's not unusual to update the zoning bylaw. There's these omnibus ones that come out every year and they tend to be text amendments. They clean things up. You know, they it's a big, big document, right? So they spot things that are incorrect or need to be updated or whatever and aligned and they, and they make those changes. What's interesting this time is that they've also included some bold moves, the same kind of language they used in the city plan document as part of this omnibus set of amendments. So as you point out, the new zoning bylaw is a few years away. So there's going to start to make some changes now um, to sort of tide us over. I'm not sure I entirely get the logic here. Like, couldn't we just move up the zoning bylaw renewal project to make it quicker? But if that's not going to happen, I guess this is the next best thing. And just quickly on the bold moves, there's a few things that are quite interesting. They're going to make the land use elements of the temporary patio program permanent. They want to expand the list of low risk developments, which do not require a development permit. And uh, they want to uh, also provide wider latitude in granting variances. So right now, if you want to get a variance, you really need to show that you have some sort of a hardship, which means administration can't give you a variance just to make it align with other plans that the city might have approved. So this would allow them to do that. So it's a way to bring development closer to the city plan before we get to that zoning bylaw renewal. The first two things you mentioned are whatever, like, sure, we'll put some patios on the streets and you don't need a development officer to validate your deck. Whatever, those seem like no-brainers. The third one about the variances gives me a little bit of pause because it does seem to grant a lot of authority to the development officer and to city planners, no? Because now any variance could just be sort of rubber stamped as, well, it aligns with city plans. So violates the rules, doesn't have any hardships, but yeah, go ahead. Isn't that a risk? I think that's a risk, but I, I guess you could also choose to see it as an opportunity because right now with the thousand different zones that the zoning bylaw makes available, 
things are very rigid and very confusing, and it's much more difficult to uh, to move things forward. So when we make a change in strategic direction for the city, it's harder to have that be borne out in development permits because of the complexity of it. And so I think this kind of aligns with where they're going anyway, which is a significant decrease in the number of zones, a, a significant decrease in the complexity of the zoning bylaw, and more freedom to say, yeah, this really does align with the strategy, so let's go ahead and do it. Of course, it introduces some risk, but maybe the payoff is worth it here. And I suppose, you know, being in the mature neighborhood overlay where I am, hey, I don't need this amendment. The hardship is that this zone prevents me from building any dense forms in my neighborhood. That was one of the other big moves I should mention, actually. They, they want to expand opportunities for garden suites, secondary suites, and home-based businesses as part of this omnibus as well. So this would allow the, you know, aging in place, different forms of family housing. If you are from a different culture and you traditionally live with different generations, lots of places currently don't allow for that. They changed the definition of secondary suites. So lots of these changes are things that are you know, represented in the city plan and not currently possible in the zoning bylaw. As much as they call them bold moves, these are the same moves that they planned for a year or two out. They're just giving us a preview right now. Yes. Yeah. Very rarely does it happen where something is near and dear to my heart and council just glosses right over it. I have a podcast now, so I get to vent about things that happen in my life and no one can stop me. Let's hear it. In early July... I was just driving a vehicle. I know, a car. What a travesty. But it was in Strathcona through a back alley. It was raining. So I drove through a puddle. I heard a horrible grating sound from beneath my car. And lo and behold, the puddle was actually masking a giant chasm that had formed in the alley. And the manhole cover jutted out like a Mount Everest right through the center of that chasm. A good probably six to eight inches above the road surface. So it completely destroyed my transmission pad. It cost me about $1,000 to fix the vehicle. And now you might say, isn't there a claims process for potholes in the city of Edmonton? You'd be right. But when you call 311 for this, they said, "Eh, it's a manhole cover. That's EPCOR's responsibility. You call EPCOR and they say, hey, here's our insurance company. Go deal with them. You contact the insurance company and they'll say, You know, no one's ever reported this before. Therefore, we have no responsibility whatsoever. Get out of my face. (laughs) Really? And that is the end of the client services interaction I had with the city of Edmonton. Wow. So not a great client experience, but, you know, I have a podcast. I talk to city councilors frequently. So I schmoozed my way into their email inboxes. And one of the things they mentioned was that this week a report was coming back and City Council had asked administration to provide an update on how administration deals with citizen complaints with utility infrastructure and how the administration inventories all utility infrastructure, both owned and maintained by the city of Edmonton and other providers, and how they can manage the condition and improve that inventory management. So I said, great, this seems right up my alley. This seems personally related to what I think about. I was extremely disappointed when it was a nothing report. Council did not even talk about it this week. It was one of those things that they didn't select for debate at committee. They just said, yes, we've received this entire report for information along with everything else. But I think there were some key highlights in here that really exemplify some of the failings we have when we get lost in the bureaucracy and don't actually think about who we're serving. This report... It was asking how the city responds to citizen complaints for infrastructure and how it manages 
the infrastructure. And the report, in a nutshell, said, to its credit, that the city will address any complaint with a utility infrastructure within 17 days. And if the city doesn't own it, the company or corporation that does own it will repair it within two weeks. And if that corporation doesn't, the city has an agreement that they can repair that infrastructure at that corporation's cost within the two weeks period. So, you know, from reporting to fixed a month, that's a pretty good turnaround. I'll give them credit there. Yeah. The thing that really caught my eye, though, is at the bottom of every Civ Edmonton report, there's that metrics, targets, and outcomes section. Mike Nichols' favorite section. But it really lets you get into the thinking of the person who is writing this report. The question was about how we can manage our infrastructure better and make sure that maintenance occurs on city infrastructure. Right. So the outcome is that private utility infrastructure is maintained in clean, safe, and good condition, supporting citizen access to utility services. That all sounds very good. The measure is time to resolve complaints related to damaged private utilities. And the result is 59% of all tickets were closed within 17 days in 2019. And in 2020, 78% of tickets were closed within the 17-day standard. So that all sounds pretty good. Like if you're a city councilor and you read that, right. it sounds like you're doing pretty well, aren't you? Like this year has gone up by almost 20%. That sounds mm-hmm. impressive. Yep. So I have a question for you, Mac. If you were, say, sitting in your house and mm. didn't have a carbon monoxide monitor, your method of making sure that no one in your house is going to die from carbon monoxide was waiting for your kid to report, hey, I smell some eggs or I'm feeling sleepy. Would it be an effective measure to keep your house safe from carbon monoxide? Probably not. Not very trustworthy. (laughs) Why is the only measure of how good our utility infrastructure is, how many citizens complain about it being broken, and how quickly we respond to those complaints? Why is there no measure for our infrastructure is not damaged? Our infrastructure is in a high-quality repaired state. Why is that not something we're measuring? Yeah, I mean, maybe there is a measure for that and they haven't included it here, but you're right, it doesn't look very good. And even worse, I think, is the target, which is just that they close 311 notifications and transfer the work to the responsible utility within 17 days. That doesn't mean it's resolved. That just means it's out of the city's hands, right? As you found out, may never actually get a resolution to that. After I reported this chasm that hadn't been maintained for years because no one had reported it, damaged my car. The city did go and repair it quite quickly, but I'm still bearing the brunt of the damages of the neglect from the city because it doesn't seem to be a priority to maintain our infrastructure proactively. This all seems to be just like a moving cup game, and it's much worse now because we've privatized Epcor. So now, rather than the city and 311 being responsible for any drainage infrastructure, it's Mm -hmm. just another level of bureaucracy And EPCOR doesn't have to deal with the city setup and they don't really respond to council and council doesn't have direct access to the corporation. EPCOR just says, here's our adjuster, deal with them. They're a private insurance adjuster. Right, there's a level of removal here now that there didn't used to be. And I think the biggest crime with all of this is that no one is talking about this. This should have been something, someone like Mike Nickel should be all over this. This is the back to basicsist thing you can get to. This is literally our roads and pipes. Let's make sure they're good quality and let's make sure we're proactively repairing that. 
and no one seemed to care this week. Well, let me put in a plug for the people's agenda. If this is something you care about, we would love to hear about it at Taproot so that it can help shape our coverage. And we can ask candidates going into the election next year, not right now, what they're going to do about this. That concludes Troy gripes about his personal beefs with the city. Let's move on to other topics. (laughs) Mac, I think there were some things that affected more than a single person in the city uh, who hosted a podcast. And that was the Edmonton Convention Center has now opened um i think yes as you are listening to this dear listener it will have opened that's right october 30th opened with limited capacity they expect to be able to ramp that up to accommodate 300 people for both day services and overnight shelter by the end of next week they're using halls a b and c at the convention center so there's about 85,000 square feet there there's lots of room for social distancing and of course as we've uh, noted before um, the facilities being operated by Boyle Street Community Services, the Mustard Seed, Bissell Center, and the Bentero Traditional Healing Society. So they're operating this space 24-7. It's not the city. They're just helping to make this all available. Um, and they're using that $8 million in funding that they got from the federal and provincial governments to help do this. They're also allocating, according to the news release, another $500,000 from the 2020 budget to operate this temporary accommodation. So they expect that this will continue at the convention center until March 31st next year. And also announced today, we're recording this on Thursday, of course, is that there's going to be a safe injection site for clients at the convention center as well. And Boyle Street Community Services uh, is going to operate that and made that announcement today. That's all very good news. And you mentioned that we're funding this at least partially with the $8 million from the federal government. But that also doesn't include the $17.3 million that was announced for additional housing units, correct? That's right. So the federal government had committed to providing funding to municipalities to help address um, the homelessness issue across the country. We didn't know how much Edmonton was going to get. We do now. It's the 17.3 that you identified. Uh, The mayor said that they're going to use that funding to build 74 housing units. So not as many as we need, but a step in in the right direction. And uh, before people get too upset about the fact that we got quite a bit less than the other cities, Calgary, for instance, got $24.6 million. What it looks like the federal government did was follow the recommendation of FCM, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, that said they should look at both the need and the context. And of course, if we're going to buy a hotel in Edmonton, it's way cheaper than if we buy a hotel in Toronto, or rather Toronto City Council buys a, a hotel in Toronto. Real estate prices are just very different. The need is very different. So the mayor seemed happy with the $17.3 million that we got this week. Yeah, I'm sure he would have wanted more. But like you said, it was following the FCM recommendation, uh, an organization on which Iveson sits. So I'm sure he had a hand in drafting that recommendation as well. Right. And he says they're going to try to move really quickly with this. Now that they have the number and have the money, they're going to try and uh, take advantage of the opportunity to uh, quickly get some new housing units going. And so that's, you know, maybe these things get conflated a little bit, right? There's the temporary shelters, which is really about dignity and making sure people have a safe and warm place to sleep during the winter. And then there is this funding for building housing units, which is what is really going to help us end homelessness. So this plan to end homelessness is really about building those permanent housing units as bridge housing uh, units, getting people housed, full stop. The temporary shelters are an important thing, but it's not the shelters that are going to end homelessness in Edmonton. 
and an update on those homeless shelters since our last episode. The one in my hood, the Mustard Seed Shelter that's opening up in the Sesco building on uh, 99th Street. Since last week, the Ritchie Community League has gone, put out some statements, and really they're handling this quite marvelously. They had mentioned that they heard some concerns from residents and they're hosting an online town hall to answer questions. This is being managed in a very respectful, as non-nimby as you can get, while accepting that, you know, something is going in in your backyard. Right. This is in contrast with uh, Ward 6 Councillor Scott McKean this week, who, um, nimbiest of nimby, is that an accurate way to talk about his comments? I think so. At least that was my first read of his comments. So the city told council this week that they are helping the Hope Mission create another temporary shelter at Commonwealth Stadium. And actually, it's been operating for a few days already, and there's more than 100 people staying there. And and I heard that news, and I thought, well, that's fantastic. There's another big, in this case, city-owned facility that is sitting empty because of COVID, and we might as well put it to good use. And another shelter seems like a great way to do that. I thought that might be the end of it. And then I kept reading and saw Councillor McKean's comments and how he was, quote, dismayed that he didn't get to hear about this first. He said, quote, I'm absolutely blown away, Mr. Smythe, that this would happen on my watch without some heads up and some meeting with me about this, end quote. When you read that quote, you know... That part of it. Yep, yeah. That's part of it. I'm not really offside with McKean right there. You know, it's he's the counselor. He has to bear the brunt of constituent concerns and even questions when a constituent emails him and says, hey, what's going on at Commonwealth Stadium? He should be able to respond. Oh, that's a shelter. Here's some details. Not giving the counselor the heads up. That is an oversight. However... That wasn't the end of the quote, was it? No, I think you're right. That's fair. Ask for some info. But he he also said when he was talking about how dismayed he was, it comes as a surprise. He said, quote, that an operator who has not operated in the manner that reduces social disorder has moved into a facility in the ward I represent and the people I represent with no consultation, no meeting about this, end quote. Is he implying that the Hope Mission doesn't operate in a manner that reduces social disorder? I think that is what he is implying, yes. And I think this part of the quote gets into that nimbiest of nimbyism point of view, right? That the idea that we're moving a shelter into Commonwealth is all of a sudden going to create lots of social disorder around those uh, the surrounding neighborhoods. And, and yeah, a very odd thing to say about an organization which clearly does a lot of good in our city and which the city is working with in a number of different ways. I think chalk it up to... McKean takes. We've talked about this on the podcast before, but Scott McKean, you know, in downtown, a generally pretty progressive ward, has all the aspects of a progressive hip counselor. He's got the beard. He's got the glasses. He rides a scooter. scooter. Yeah. He looks like a guy you could have a beer with and, you know, talk about the UCP destroying our province with. However, when you actually start talking with him, you get the weird like Thanksgiving grandpa uncle vibes that you're not really super stoked about. Definitely. I, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. I, you know, I want to give Councillor McKean the benefit of the doubt here. Maybe his comments were taken a bit out of context or the article didn't 
present them in the right way. I did tweet at him to see if he could clarify why he thought he should be consulted because there's there's the comments about the Hope mission, but it's also the like need to be consulted. This is a city-owned facility. This is a problem that council is well aware of and the city is doing something about it. I'm I'm not sure what that consultation would have accomplished, but alas, I didn't I didn't hear back. Also, consultation is very much a dog whistle term in this city. When you're talking about consultation for either affordable housing or shelters, we have identified that these facilities need to be in all places in our city. We can't concentrate the uh, services in one area. And we have done an astronomically large amount of consultation. The next step is to do stuff. So I don't know that he actually needed to be consulted about this rather than informed, you know, get a memo. Right. Yes. The memo we got from the chief medical officer this week was that Edmonton is at a tipping point with COVID-19 and I guess limit your gatherings to no more than 15 people and make sure you're in no more than three cohorts that include 15 people. So don't change anything, but we're at a tipping point. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this is a continuation of the discussion that was going for a month now that cases are rising again. We're seeing the second wave, thankfully not as... Uh, severe of an increase here in in Canada and in Alberta, as we've seen in other parts of the world, but it's going up. We have more than 2,200 active cases in the Edmonton zone as of today, almost 1,900 within the city of Edmonton itself. And the officials have been saying, you know, that we want to give Edmontonians a chance to do the right thing. Meanwhile, you're looking around thinking, well, it doesn't seem to be working. Cases are going up, but I guess we don't have to make anything mandatory yet, except for, as you said, limiting gatherings to 15 people. Limiting gatherings to 15 people, except in restaurants, bars, theaters, or any business. Right. And I know this week we reported uh, in the Food Roundup and other people reported as well that there was just one case of COVID tied to restaurants. And so it's not like it's a hot spot. There's not a ton of cases coming from there. But for me, it's the cognitive dissonance of walking into a restaurant and seeing it full of people without masks on and then having to think, oh, I, but I can only interact with 15 people at my Thanksgiving dinner or I have to wear a mask everywhere else I go. Like it, it just seems it, it feeds into that complexity of the rules that everybody should be following. You mentioned one case in restaurants. I believe it was actually one outbreak related to restaurants. There have been more than one case in a restaurant, correct? Yeah, sorry, my mistake. And and of course, there's been staff that have been tested positive and restaurants have closed proactively to make sure that they don't spread it further. But you're right, uh, outbreak is what I meant to say there. We're sounding the alarm bells. Um, this is an important issue. I don't think we're going to be doing very much about this, though there was one tangible action this week that I think you're calling a win. And it gets your daughter to daycare. So selfishly now then, uh, runny nose is a thing that happens for kids. Uh, Anybody with little kids will know their nose runs all the time. And until this week, it was one of the symptoms for COVID, which meant if your kid had a runny nose, you had to bring them home. They had to isolate for 10 days or you had to have a negative test and the symptoms had to go away before they could return to daycare or to school. And as of today, they've removed uh, that from the list. And what they've actually done is broken the symptoms up into some like primary symptoms and then other symptoms. And uh, and runny nose is now one of the others. So if your kid has a runny nose, they can stay home for 24 hours. But if they're getting better, 
they can go back to school or to daycare. They don't have to uh, isolate or, or necessarily wait for a negative test. So this is presented by Dr. Hinshaw today as a bit of a olive branch, a bit of a way to help people who are running out of paid sick leave because their kid has been home with a runny nose so much this year. Uh, find a way to manage that, you know, still be responsible and socially distance and all the other things, but recognize that this isn't perhaps as severe a transmission vector as we maybe thought at the beginning and the fact that it's cold season now it's that time of year kids have runny nose all the time so yes i was happy about that but this is only for children correct that recommendation does not apply to people like me who may have gone out for a bike ride this evening and got a runny nose in the cold and now is flaunting the law by going out for groceries tonight that is correct come at me dr <laughs> dina henshaw your laws don't apply to me actually do but you know i'm not sure she's a listener anyway it's on the record now we're just about out of time but we have to come back around to celebrate the city's flawless execution here there were no problems involved in this process whatsoever groat road bridge is now reopening on time on budget they made sure to get that line in the bridge will reopen to four lanes of traffic with a wider 4.2 meter shared use path on sunday ready for the morning commutes what a celebratory message the city is communicating right here. I think they use the same headline every year, actually. City concludes successful construction season. Every year is successful. I don't, I don't think they've ever had an unsuccessful one. Let's jump back and let's talk about some of the storied problems of the Grote Bridge phenomenon. One is the shared use path that they're celebrating. They actually just made it about a 40 centimeter wide sidewalk and kicked bikes off throughout the entire process, the only way to cross that river. They then handed out $150 tickets to any cyclist who attempted to cycle over Groat Road Bridge. Um, this, citing the city administration throwing their hands up and saying, there's nothing we can do about it. The bylaw says that this is the way it has to be. Not mentioning that they changed the bylaw to that mere months before. Councillors also took no responsibility for that and nothing changed for several years of construction. But it's open now, so we can gloss over. There were no problems with this construction. There was no lessons learned to take away, and there's nothing that the city can improve because, again, on time, on budget, right? I th exactly. I thought you would like that part of the news release, actually, where they noted that motor vehicle traffic was reduced to one lane in either direction for over two years, and the pedestrian walkway has been operating with limited capacity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Understatement of the century. I guess Edmonton has a little bit of COVID, doesn't it, City of Edmonton? Yeah. yeah. We have to end this podcast on time and we got to get on budget. And that's by reading this ad. This episode is brought to you by Park Power, a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who you buy your energy from and Park Power has low overhead and chances are you'll save money if you switch. You can find out how much money you will save by visiting parkpower.ca and plugging your numbers into the Alberta Energy Savings Calculator. And that's technology, technology innovation. If you decide to switch, it's easy. Nothing changes about your service, only the price you pay. Learn more at parkpower.ca. And that's all for this week. Um, I should start scripting these endings. I, I, got, <laughs> I got nothing. We got to put something in here so we've got something standard. We haven't plugged taprootedmonton.ca for a while, but... You know, there's developments happening there. You've got a managing editor. There's things that are going to come out. You were telling me just today that when you email uh, city staff and counselor's offices, 
Taproot commands respect and they respond to your emails immediately, correct? Well, more so than maybe in the past. And I'm not sure if that's because we're doing something right or everybody else is just getting laid off in the local media world. But hey, we'll take <laughs> it either way. It's a good thing. But yes, if you visit taprootedmonton.ca, you can find out about the new podcast uh, and the series Igniting Innovation, the People's Agenda. Share your thoughts there. We'd love to have it. And you can also look at becoming a member to support the work that we're doing. And that's all. I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.